0: The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. Now we, as I said, we are starting a, a journey this week together, and the triumphal entry. You know, it's kind of interesting. I heard a preacher say this, and I kind of agreed. I'm influenced by what my Bible says, triumphal entry. I'm not sure it was so triumphal. Okay, it's a pretty rough week that our Savior endured. But there was quite a celebration as he came into the city. It's interesting. He enters the city by the Mount of Olives, and there are 12 references to the Mount of Olives in the Gospels. It is on the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is. It's on the Mount of Olives where he will return. In fact, if you go to Israel today and you visit the Mount of Olives, you know what you'll find there? Graves. Because they're expecting the Messiah to come back at the Mount of Olives. They don't want to miss it. Isn't that amazing? So it was on the Mount of Olives as he's coming into the city. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That's Zechariah making that prediction and Jesus coming into the city. Well, they were singing from Psalm 118. In your English Bible as we have it, the very center of the Bible is Psalm 118. It is the very center of our Bibles. And it is what they were quoting and singing as Jesus was coming in. Hosanna means, Lord, save us. That's what it means. And they were singing this. Now, in that Psalm, they, it says that the disciples didn't understand. Did you ever feel that way? Like, <laughs> not quite sure. But after he was glorified, resurrected, then they began to realize that these things had been written about him. In Psalm 118, it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstones. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is a day the Lord has made. <coughs> Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What are we rejoicing? We're rejoicing that Jesus was the stone the builders rejected. The religious leaders of the day rejected him. But he is the cornerstone. He is the most prominent of all. And the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous. It is miraculous in our eyes. That's what they were saying. The very day that he came in, the very week that he would be betrayed. The theme for our resurrection celebration is this. Our God forgives sins and saves sinners. That's that's the message. Our God forgives sins. Hallelujah. And he saves sinners. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He does hate sin, but he loves sinners. And this is the unfolding of his plan. This is is the miracle of his plan. There are so many Old Testament promises of forgiveness. They're just beautiful to read. This is Old Testament. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You did not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. What a picture of forgiveness. Not only trampled, but then thrown into the sea. Hallelujah. Gone forever. How about this? David writes, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as... As the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's an infinite space. East to west, it's an infinite space. And these are transgressions. These are the sins we knew we were doing before we did them. And David writes of the forgiveness and pictures it this way. Maybe this is my favorite in Isaiah. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. Blots them out of the record for my own sake, for the glory of God, and remembers your sins no more. Now, does God have a memory problem? Honestly. God does not have dementia. He is not suffering from any memory loss. So what exactly does this mean, that he will remember our sins no more? It means... He will not hold it against us. And when you and I forgive others, there's some things we'll never forget. But we hold it not against the one we forgive. And we take the loss. We talked about that a while ago. And God did this in salvation. So these Old Testament pictures are amazing. But we didn't even get to the New Testament yet. And look at Hebrews. This is just such a great verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we are surrounded by people who gave their lives for Jesus Christ. They died believing in Jesus. They were martyrs. There's a great cloud of them. There are many who have gone before us. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews gives us such a clear picture of Jesus' attitude as he's facing the cross. The joy set before him. It is not joyful to die on a cross. It is difficult. And we're going to see that as we we look at a lot of scriptures today. The joy was accomplishing the Father's purpose and plan and mission. And in so doing, inviting sinners into heaven. Forgiving sins and saving sinners. My, that's, that's the joy. And he endured the cross. Yes, it was difficult. It was painful. And he scorned the shame. He overlooked it. He probably died naked. He probably did. I mean, it was very shameful. That's why the Romans executed people on crosses. You probably know, Roman citizens would not ever be executed on a cross. It was part of their law. That couldn't happen to a Roman citizen. And yet, the Lord Jesus scorned the shame. He overlooked it. Was there shame there? Of course, it was embarrassing and shame, but he overlooked it. He, didn't, he, he, he disregarded it. And then he sat at the right hand of the Father. You see, it's just such, such a great verse. And Jesus was committed to fulfilling the mission. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a broad study of God's plan to forgive sins and save sinners. This is a very broad look. We, I'm going to give you a bunch of scripture that you can go back and look at. And if you're watching online, you can go back and look at and on Monday, I always produce on our website some further up questions that will help you to go deeper on some of the sermon topics that we've talked about. So that's always available, and you can look into that. But I'm, I'm admitting that we're in overdrive, okay? We're just going to go fast, and, and, and we can only hit some highlights, and that's just the way it is. So we're going to begin here with the predetermination to forgiveness. The predetermination. 1 Peter 1.20 before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Jesus, the Savior, was chosen before the creation of the world. Theologians speak of the divine decree where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit agreed together that they would save those they're creating, going to create, who will fall, and they'll forgive their sins, and they'll save sinners. This was determined before the creation. And there's all willingness within the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's just a beautiful thing. And he was revealed in these last times for your sake. So he stepped into history and he was revealed in it. And that's the beauty of the unfolding of the plan And he is a lamb without blemish, or spot, that's what the previous verse says. We were redeemed not with silver and gold which perishes, but with the precious blood of the lamb. Without blemish. Christ paid the debt for us. And and this is what Peter is celebrating, the predetermination to forgiveness. How about this, the prediction to forgiveness. We're going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The first prediction of the Savior of the Lord Jesus is found in Genesis 3.15. This is the Lord speaking to the devil who had deceived Eve and led human beings into sin. And what did God say? If you sin, you'll die. And the fact that they were hiding from God shows they had already died, though physically they had not died, spiritually there was now a separation which they didn't know before. And so he says to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Hostility, anger. You'll be treating each other like enemies. Enmity, hostility. And between your offspring and hers, seed is what is generally translated as. But notice the next phrase the collective seed becomes one individual. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. He, the seed, the one who would come to redeem us. To do what? Save us, forgive us of our sins, and save sinners. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. Isn't this amazing? This, this prediction, the first of so many in the Bible, predicting the coming of the Savior, and he will crush your head. It will be an absolute and complete victory. Not just at the cross, but when you really read in Revelation 20 that he is thrown into the eternal lake of fire, he's done. He's totally defeated. And that's the beauty of the unfolding of God's plan, that And this was enough for Adam and Eve. They would know as they walked out of the garden that even though they had fallen into sin, there's a plan. There's a Savior, and he's going to win. He's going to crush Satan's head. But Satan will nip his heel, and that's a pretty significant part of the story as well, isn't it? So we saw the predetermination. Then we see the prediction. Now we're gonna move into the progression to forgiveness. So now we're gonna to go to the Gospel of Luke, all right? We're just gonna run through quite a lot of verses. Again, I'm warning you, we don't have time to linger on them like I'd like to, but that's just the way it is. And, and we're gonna look at the Gospel progression, the progression to forgiveness. And we begin in Luke 131. You will conceive and give birth to a son, this is the angel speaking to Mary, and you are to call him Jesus. His name, Jesus, means the Lord saves. It's the same name as the Old Testament Joshua, Hebrew pronunciation would be Yeshua, but it means the Lord saves. It was a common name, but there is one uncommon one who fulfilled it, And, you know, I love the old Gaither song, Jesus, Jesus, there's just something about that name. Why? Because he's the Savior. He forgives our sins. He saves sinners. Jesus was his name. You'll remember that Joseph is told in a dream, you're to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what he'll do. So even in his name, there's forgiveness. How about the progression now, in Luke chapter 2, Luke's the only one that tells us this. Obviously, he had a conversation with Mary. He would not have known about this, except that he spoke with Mary about the birth, and then this scene that happened when Jesus was 12, when he is just, you know, a child. The, the rabbi said, when you're 12, you've got to start obeying the law. Okay, you kind of get a pass before that. But when you're 12, you've got to start taking this serious. And they were in Jerusalem because the family would go to Jerusalem for three feasts. The Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus is 12. Have you ever lost a child? Is this not the most embarrassing thing in the world if you lose your child? For those of you who don't have children yet, this might keep you from having children. It is such a frightening thought. When, when I used to go to baseball games at Vet Stadium in Philadelphia, uh, we used to meet at the uh, Red Cross or at the, the place of the station, and that's where the kids were that had been lost. And the story was always the same. As soon as the parent comes in, you see this little kid sitting there, <laughs> you know, out of his mind, scared to death, and then the parents come in, and they all go, oh, I'm so glad to see you. Where were you? What did you do? How did you get lost? <laughs> I told you. Well, imagine, you are the mother and father of the Savior of the world, and you lost him? You don't know where he is? Like, this is quite, quite a story, isn't it, huh? But Jesus, even at 12, understands that he's on a mission. And he says, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? I think the King James says, I had to be about my father's business. You see, he, he's, he's on mission It's a mission to do what? Forgive sins and save sinners. And he understands that even at the age of 12. Now we fast forward to his baptism. When all the people were being baptized by John, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, Luke's the only one who mentions that Jesus was praying when he got baptized. As he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now you remember that when John sees Jesus, he says, You should be baptized in me. But Jesus says, To fulfill all righteousness, we're going to do this. Jesus was not being baptized because he wanted to be forgiven of his sins. He didn't commit any sins. He had a sinless human nature. That's why he was virgin born, right? Why then would he submit to this plea for forgiveness pictured by water baptism with John? Because he's identifying with us. He's on mission, He's going to forgive sins, and he's going to save sinners. And that's why he tells John to fulfill all righteousness. We're going to do this. And then the Holy Spirit shows up and comes down like a dove, and then the Father can't help himself. He has to talk too. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. It's beautiful to see all three persons of the Godhead there at the Baptism of Jesus. This is the beginning of his public ministry. I mean, the first glimpse we had was when he's 12. He waited all these years for John to show up and start preparing the people, and then he's baptized. And again, this is all about forgiveness. That's him identifying. How about this? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Wait a minute. I thought if you're full of the Spirit and you're led by the Spirit, you're only going to have blessed, comforting, wonderful experiences. I say that because I'm an American. And I expect that's the way it is, but it isn't that way. He was led by the Spirit. He is full of the Spirit, led into the wilderness. The wilderness reminded him and... of of the wanderings where the people of Israel wandered for 40 years while a whole generation died out before they went into the promised land. And we know that he was most likely meditating on Deuteronomy while he was out in the wilderness. So, So let's take a moment to look at this attempt by Satan to thwart the mission. In many ways, that's what the temptation is. And it says he left him for a season. I mean, he'd come back, but the season was over at the end of the temptation. You remember this quite well, I'm sure. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, basically since you're the Son of God, he's acknowledging that, tell this stone to become bread. Now, I want to ask you, did Jesus have the power to change stones into bread? Obviously. Obviously, he did. He hasn't eaten for 40 years days. Now, no doubt he's hungry, but he's also strong because he's been fasting. You know, I think you got to see both sides of that, right? And there he is, ready to take on the battle. And how does he thwart the enemy? By quoting scripture. How are you going to defeat the enemy? By quoting scripture, by believing the promise of God. Man shall not live, it is written, by bread alone. That's a quote from Deuteronomy. So basically, physical needs supersede spiritual priorities. That's what the devil's trying to lie to him about. And he's not going to take it. He's not going to go for that. Spiritual priorities are spiritual priorities. They're the top priorities. So he goes on the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, he lied to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Liar. In some sense, he's the prince of the world. In some sense. But he doesn't have the authority to do this. He's lying. Jesus knows this. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, he is is not going to take a shortcut on the mission. He came to die. Why? Because he wants to forgive sins and save sinners. And for that reason, he's not going to buy this lie. How many people buy into lies and miss what God really wants to do? Now, God's still merciful, but the the Savior was ready for the attack. And then finally, it says that the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... See, he quotes scripture too, out of context, (laughs) yeah. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You see, the lie is you can claim any promise at any time. That's a lie. Look at the context. That's not the context. So Jesus answers, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Beautiful, Hallelujah. All of this is because he's on the mission to forgive sins and save sinners. This fits very well with 1 John 2, 16. The temptations of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those three are all mingled in to that temptation that Jesus won victoriously over the devil as he's beginning his Mission. Now in Luke chapter 9, 51, there's a very important turning point in the gospel. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, ascended back into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He's on plan. He's going to follow the mission. He's going to do what God wants him to do, the Father wants him to do. He's doing it in obedience to the Father and the leading of the Spirit of God. One commentator said something very interesting I've never thought of. Luke wrote this gospel. He's a Gentile. He interviewed a lot of people who had firsthand knowledge of what happened. He says that in the very beginning. And then he wrote Acts that describes what happened in the church. This commentator said, Was this his defense before Caesar? Are these the kinds of things that he would say to Caesar before they executed him? That this is the gospel message? And this is what happened in the early church. I don't know. I found that a rather intriguing idea. But he is so determined. I think one translation says, he set his face like a flint. He is going to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to stop him. He knows what's going to happen. And the whole rest of Luke, from Luke 9, 51 to the end of the letter, it's all about that last journey going to Jerusalem. And and, uh, and so it's, it's, he's resolutely, he said to his disciples, it's my food to do the will of him who sent me and to fulfill everything he said. That, that, that's how he's on mission. That's what he's doing because he wants to forgive sins. He wants to save sinners. And he's going to do it. Look at this lament as he goes to the city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Isn't that such a picture? Here's the Savior wanting to forgive, wanting to set them free. They are not willing. It's proven by all the prophets they had martyred, even in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus would die outside of the city. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." That's the quote of Psalm 118, which happened on Palm Sunday, what we call now Palm Sunday. But but notice the tender picture. I want to just gather you like a hen with her chicks. I want to protect you, but you're not willing. How sad! Again, he's on mission. Then we move to when he predicts his death, which happened several times. This is just one example. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. All the prophecies that were made will be fulfilled. Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. And it was understood to be messianic. The rabbi said that was a phrase of Messiah. So he is claiming to be the Messiah just using the title. And it's a title that he often used. I want to read for you what Daniel said about the Son of Man. You ready for this? It's a good thing you're seated. I'm telling you honestly. In my vision at night, I looked. This is Daniel 7.13. And there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, which is a figure for the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Hallelujah. This is our Savior, and yet he's using that title to describe his rejection. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He's going to be arrested and and given over to the Gentiles, which is exactly what happened. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. Have you actually ever endured somebody spitting in your face? Imagine that. He's the son of man. He's destined to rule the universe. He is the ruler of the universe. Yet they spit in him. They will flog him and kill him. All because he's willing to die. He came to die. He chose to die. I don't choose to die. The day of my death's appointed. I've been with people when they died. I've been with my own father when he died and breathed his last. He did not say, it is finished and gave up his spirit. He died on God's terms when God said it's time to come home, Ray. But Jesus laid down his life, beloved. He died on his terms. It is finished. And he breathed his last. It was a victory. And on the third day, he'll rise again. That's always included. Whatever he's predicted is suffering, he always puts in, and on the third day, he'll rise again. And they didn't get it. They're just like me. They didn't get it. The disciples did not understand any of this. It's meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. You know, so on Easter morning, they don't know where he is. Oh, they stole the body. No, they didn't steal the body. Come on. If you had just believed what he had said, you know, Mary did. Mary anointed him just prior to Palm Sunday for his burial. And it was expensive. And there was fragrance in the house. So she really did believe. But the rest of them, they just didn't get it. Finally, I take us to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. It's where the olives were pressed. They put them in. They crushed the olives to get the oil out. That's what they did on the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now, who should have been praying? Peter, yes. All of them. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. This is the humanity of Jesus. We we really see the humanity of Jesus here. And how he's shrinking back from the death that he's going to die. Not just to die, but to die bearing our sins. For all we like sheep have gone astray. And each of us has turned our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And, and you can just see in those words how, how that is. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Luke's the only one that tells us that. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. There actually is a condition when you're under extreme anxiety that the capillaries burst, and when you sweat, there's blood. And I think that is exactly what happened, because as the other gospel says, he was surrounded by grief. He was surrounded by pain as he thought about approaching the cross. And you know, with all that happened to him and all this prayer and everything, I read a, a comment that I really struck me. Perhaps the most painful thing he endured that night was the kiss of Judas. That his friend would betray him. You know? But there was so much more. And, and all of this was... Was fulfilling scripture. And our Savior wins. I love this quote without the sorrow of Gethsemane, there will be no salvation at Golgotha. He won the battle on his knees, didn't he? And this is why we've walked through this. I've done the best I can to try to prepare us for the week thinking about all that Jesus accomplished, looking back on the plan, which from the very beginning, before the creation of the world was set in motion, and then predicted even in the garden, and then progression, and we could have looked at so much more, and you're so glad we didn't, but I'm kind of disappointed. Anyway, without the sorrow of Gethsemane, there will be no salvation at Golgotha, and it's all about forgiving sins and saving sinners who will repent and believe on Christ. That's all that's required. And so when we come to this, we say the forgiveness God offers us by faith in Jesus is free, but it is not cheap. And Jesus willingly paid that price for us. Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain but he washed it white as snow. So as we go to the Lord's Supper today, let's remember, once again, forgiveness comes up. It's all about forgiveness. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body, a symbol of my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Beloved, as we come to the Lord's table today, let us give thanks that He willingly laid down His body for us and shed His blood in our place so that we take this cup and take this bread, saying, I am forgiven. I am forgiven. None of us are worthy. He's the worthy one. But he forgives sins and saves sinners. That's what we're remembering. That's what we're celebrating. And next week, Lord willing, you'll have a bracelet. Dear Father, we ask you, as the ushers come forth, to bless this bread, the symbol of your body given for us. Lord Jesus, we have no idea what you looked like, but you had a perfect human spirit. And Lord, thank you for laying down your life for us in your body and enduring all that you endured as we read about just a moment ago. Lord, we praise you that your body was given for us. And Lord, we thank you for the cup of the blood, the blood that was without blemish. For we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, hallelujah. And Lord, we remember that this blood cleanses us from every and all sins. And it's by your blood, Lord, that we are saved, that we have forgiveness. So we remember that as we partake Bless this cup and this bread to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.